I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of the We the Voters podcast. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily K. Topchesky. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side, no matter what side you're on. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, let's take a look at a topic that's gained traction and debate in recent years, healthcare reform. Healthcare is a contentious issue in the U.S., Some believe this service should be provided by the government and offered to citizens for free. Others believe it is best handled by private companies and vendors. In the next hour, I'll take myths apart and find the facts about healthcare reform in the United States. We'll take a look at two opposite opinions. One in support of universal healthcare, where supporters say healthcare is a human right. Then, we'll take a look at the opposite opinion in support of privatized healthcare, where supporters say it is best handled by private companies, not the government. But before we look at these opinions, let's ground our discussion with some basic facts about healthcare reform and its history in the United States. Healthcare is an organized system that provides medical care, goods, and services to individuals and communities. In the United States, the healthcare system is a hybrid. Part of the care comes from private funds, and another part comes from public spending. In 2014, almost half of all healthcare spending came from private funds, with 28% coming from private households and 20% coming from private businesses. On the other hand, more than a quarter of spending came from the federal government, and 17% came from state and local government budgets. Many people in the United States have health insurance to cover some or all medical expenses. To get insurance, citizens pay regular payments to a private company in exchange for coverage on medical expenses. As of 2019, 92% of people in the U.S. were covered by either public or private health insurance. About 27.5 million people were not insured at all. Some critics of the U.S. healthcare system say that prohibitively high costs limit healthcare access. The AFL-CIO says, quote, Americans with below-average incomes are much more likely than their counterparts in other countries to report not visiting a physician when sick, not getting a recommended test, treatment, or follow-up care, not filling a prescription, and not seeing a dentist, unquote. 59% of doctors in the U.S. report their patients have a difficult time paying for care. In 2013, 31% of uninsured adults delayed getting medical care because of the cost, or went without completely. In comparison, 5% of adults with private insurance and just over a quarter of people with public insurance reported the same. Others associate rising healthcare costs with new technology, the rise of chronic diseases, and high administrative costs. In 2019, $3.8 trillion were spent on healthcare-related goods and services. This spending accounted for almost 18% of the country's GDP. Over recent decades, the U.S. has reformed its healthcare system to improve access to medical care and lower its cost for patients. These reforms include the introduction of public health care coverage for low-income adults and families, the passage of CHIP for public health care coverage for low-income children, and the passage of the Affordable Care Act to reform the dual private-public system. But the earliest records of health care coverage and reform in the U.S. dates back to the end of the 18th century. In 1798, President John Adams established the Marine Hospital Service. 
This was established to relieve sick and disabled seamen, and it was extended to cover officers and men of the U.S. Navy the next year. In 1803, the first permanent marine hospital was built in Boston. Four years later, physician interns and residents were introduced into hospitals in the U.S. In 1836, the National Library of Medicine was established. This library became a leader in health research, scientific discovery, and biomedical literature. In 1878, Congress passed the first Federal Quarantine Act. This same year, the government designated funds for investigating epidemic diseases, particularly focused on yellow fever and cholera. The next year, the National Board of Health was established. The board was the first national medical research effort funded by the federal government. But in 1893, a new Quarantine Act was passed, which strengthened the previous act and dissolved the National Board of Health. At the turn of the 20th century, the American Medical Association, or AMA, was established as a national organization. Over the next decade, membership grew to about 70,000 doctors, half the physicians in the country at the time. In 1912, the first state law model for regulating health insurance was developed. This same year, President Teddy Roosevelt endorses social insurance in his platform, including health insurance. In 1918, Congress established funding for studying venereal diseases. This established a precedent for the federal government providing scientists with research grants for support. The Public Health Services was established this same year to cope with emergencies during the flu epidemic. Three years later, Congress passed the Shepherd-Towner Act. This act created maternal and children's health clinics nationwide, and it was the first federally funded health program in the country. The Shepherd-Towner Act was the result of women organizing at all levels, pressuring congressional leaders and taking advantage of their new right to vote. Through this act, women developed, implemented, and administered public clinics. Much of the medical community at large was against this act and lobbied against its reauthorization. The act later expired at the end of the decade, but during the act's short existence, these clinics played an important role in lowering child mortality rates across the country. In 1927, a committee was formed to study the economics of medical care. This committee was made up of economists, physicians, public health experts, and other major interest groups. The majority endorsed the idea of medical group practices and voluntary health insurance. In 1929, Baylor Hospital introduced a prepaid hospital insurance plan for a group of school teachers. This insurance plan was the foundation of future nonprofit Blue Cross insurance plans. In 1930, Congress designated the Hygienic Laboratory as the National Institutes of Health. This created a system of fellowships and authorized building the federal headquarters. Four years later, President Franklin Roosevelt created the Committee of Economic Security. This group addressed aging and unemployment issues, but it also covered medical care and insurance concerns. In 1935, Congress passed the Social Security Act. Title VI of this act authorized up to $2 million in health grants. These grants were given to the states to research diseases and sanitation issues. Also under this act were grants for women's and children's health. These grants reestablished programs that had closed after the Shepherd-Towner Act expired and extended to cover other child welfare services. In 1943, three lawmakers introduced legislation to broaden health insurance as part of Social Security. This proposed bill included universal comprehensive health insurance, moving the system towards, quote, cradle-to-grave, unquote, social insurance. It ultimately failed to become law, but was reintroduced the following two years. In 1944, President Roosevelt outlined the Economic Bill of Rights in his State of the Union address. This includes the right to adequate medical care and the right to achieve and enjoy good health. Two years later, Congress passed the Hospital Survey and Construction Act. This act funded the construction of new hospitals in the U.S., while it outlawed discrimination based on race, religion, or national origin in medical care, it also allowed, quote, separate but equal, unquote, facilities. Additionally, the law required hospitals to provide a portion of charitable care. In 1948, the AMA launched a national campaign against national health insurance. 
It reported concerns of lower provider reimbursements and limits to patients' coverage and care access. At the start of the 1950s, national healthcare expenditures made up about 4.5% of the GDP, a system of private insurance for those who could afford it and public benefit systems for low-income individuals was established. In 1954, Congress passed the Revenue Act. This act excluded employers' contributions to employee health insurance plans from taxable income. Four years later, Congress passed the CARES Mills Act. This act used federal funds to support state health programs, which provided care for low-income and elderly individuals. This was a precursor to the Medicaid program. By the 1960s, the price of hospital care doubled. Over 700 insurance companies were selling health insurance, with many major companies endorsing high-cost medicine. In 1965, the Medicaid and Medicare programs were signed into law. Medicare Part A was designated to pay for hospital care and limited nursing and home health care. Part B was established to pay for physician care. Medicare was designated for people who were 65 years old or older. On the other hand, Medicaid was a separate program to cover health insurance for low-income households, the elderly, and people with disabilities. During the 1970s, healthcare costs began to escalate rapidly. This was connected to high Medicare expenditures, rapid inflation, and expanding hospital expenses and profits. Changes in the healthcare system continued rapidly through this decade. It can be particularly seen in the understanding of medicine as crises-related rather than prevention-related. This opinion about the purpose of medicine continues for years to come. In 1974, Congress passed the Health Planning Resources Act. This act required states to develop health planning programs. These programs ended duplicated services, and they also developed certificate of need programs. Certificate of need programs expanded healthcare facilities and services in a given area. They sought to address community needs. In 1977, President Carter proposed Medicaid expansion for low-income children under six. He called this program the Children's Health Assessment Program, but it failed to come for a vote in Congress. In 1980, Congress made adjustments to the Medicaid requirements. This included requiring states to make additional payments to hospitals that serve high percentage of Medicaid and low-income patients. Six years later, Congress passed the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. This act required Medicare participating hospitals to screen and stabilize all emergency room patients, regardless of their ability to pay. This same year, Congress reconciled the federal budget. It included a requirement that employees who lost their jobs were allowed to continue their health plan for 18 months. It also raised the option to cover infants, young children, and pregnant women up to 100% of the poverty level. This was raised to 185% of the poverty threshold the next year. In 1988, Congress passed the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act. This act expanded Medicare coverage to include prescription drugs, and it also established a cap on out-of-pocket expenses. This act was widely controversial as many believed the costs outweighed the benefits. Most of the law was repealed the next year. But also in 1988, Congress passed the Family Support Act. This act required states to offer a year of transitional health coverage via Medicaid for families leaving public support benefits because of their work earnings. During the following decade, health care costs began to rise at double the rate of inflation. In 1993, the Clinton administration began enacting and proposing a series of health care reforms. For example, Medicaid waivers allowed more statewide expansion demonstrations. Many states turned to managed care for services and used savings to expand coverage to uninsured groups. A Vaccines for Children program was established. It provided federally purchased vaccines to the states. Additionally, President Clinton proposed the Health Security Act. This act was introduced in Congress to little support. Within this law, every American would be granted a health security card to ensure health care access. Other proposals failed to gain support as well. This includes a reform bill for single-payer health insurance and a bill to manage competition without universal coverage guarantees. In 1996, Congress passed the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. 
This law restricted companies from using pre-existing conditions when determining health insurance coverage. It also sets standards for private medical records and long-term care insurance. This same year, Congress passed the Mental Health Parity Act. This act prohibited group health plans from having lower limits for mental health benefits than other benefits, except in cases of substance abuse. In 1997, Congress passed the State Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP. This program provided grants to the states for health care coverage for low-income children above Medicaid eligibility levels. In 2002, President Bush launched the Health Center Growth Initiative. This program significantly expanded the number of community health centers across the country that served under and uninsured communities. The next year, new legislation created health savings accounts, or HSAs. These accounts allow people to set aside pre-tax dollars to pay for medical expenses. These plans must be used as part of a high-deductible insurance plan. In 2006, Massachusetts passed a law that provided health care coverage to nearly all state residents. It required residents to obtain insurance and called for a share responsibility in financing expanded coverage. Within two years, the number of people uninsured was cut in half. Also in 2006, Vermont passed comprehensive health care reform, which aimed for near-universal coverage. This created a plan for uninsured residents, improved quality of care, and improved chronic condition management. The next year, the Healthy Americans Act was proposed. This law would require individuals to obtain private health insurance through state purchasing pools. It also would eliminate favorable tax treatments on employer-sponsored insurance premiums. It ultimately failed in Congress after gaining some bipartisan support. Also in 2007, President Bush announced a health reform plan that would replace the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance with a standard health care deduction. The proposal was not acted upon by Congress. In 2009, President Obama established the Office of Health Reform. This office was designated to coordinate administrative efforts in reforming the national health care system. This same year, CHIP was reauthorized. It granted additional funding for the states and provided new tools and incentives to reach an estimated 5 million children who would have been uninsured over the next four years. In 2010, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as the ACA or Obamacare. This act marks historic health care reform in the United States. By this law, all Americans were required to have health insurance beginning in 2014. Through the ACA, health plans were not able to deny coverage for any reason, including pre-existing conditions, nor were they able to charge more because of a person's health or gender. Young adults were able to be covered under their parents' plans until the age of 26. Additionally, more low-income Americans would be covered under Medicaid expansion. Those with lower middle incomes who did not have access to affordable coverage would be able to purchase coverage with federal subsidies through the American Health Benefit Exchange. According to the ACA, employers were not required to provide health benefits. However, large businesses were required to pay penalties if employees received insurance subsidies. Also, small businesses were able to access more plans through a separate exchange. The ACA was largely seen as a controversial law. It was opposed by critics for many reasons, including the individual mandate and the employer mandate. On the other hand, supporters said it expanded health care coverage to millions of Americans who were previously uninsured. Following its passage, critics at all federal government levels campaigned on repealing the ACA. In 2017, an act to repeal the ACA was voted down in the Senate. Later that year, the individual mandate portion of the ACA was struck down as part of President Trump's Tax Reconciliation Act. This eliminated the penalty that required all U.S. residents to have health insurance or pay a fine. Also in 2017, the Trump administration expanded short-term health insurance. This allowed these plans to be used for 364 days and then extended for up to an additional three years, rather than be limited to three months. This short-term insurance lacked many of the mandatory essential benefits defined by the ACA. In 2019, President Trump issued an executive order that established pricing transparency in the healthcare system. 
This proposed rule would compel hospitals and insurance companies to disclose the secret rates they negotiate with each other for healthcare services, including drug costs, medical supplies, and doctor and facility fees. Bills proposed in the same year to address drug pricing have failed to become law, lacking support among lawmakers in the Senate. In January 2020, the World Health Organization, or WHO, announced a mysterious coronavirus-related pneumonia that surfaced in Wuhan, China. Later this month, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, confirmed the first U.S. coronavirus case. In the weeks and months that followed, countries around the world would go under strict quarantine, lockdown, or stay-at-home orders. In the United States, the federal government declared COVID-19 a public health emergency in February, and a national emergency the next month. In March 2020, Congress passed the CARES Act. This act allotted $2 trillion in aid for hospitals, small businesses, and state and local governments. It also eliminated the Medicare sequester from May to December that year. Throughout the year, cases and mortality rates continued to climb. As of recording this in March 2021, there have been more than 29 million reported COVID-19 cases in the U.S. 532,741 people have died from the virus. At this same time, experts began rapidly developing a vaccine. There are currently three vaccines being deployed in the U.S. As of recording this episode, 24% of citizens have received their first dose of the vaccine. 12% are fully vaccinated. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light many questions about the scope and efficacy of the U.S. healthcare system. The AMA is encouraging lawmakers to address what has become a health system that is, quote, both extraordinarily expensive and highly inefficient, unquote. The AMA says that the pandemic is a reminder to address persistent inequities in healthcare, equip healthcare professionals with the right tools and support to provide patient care, and push prevention as a way to help circumvent unfortunate outcomes. Public opinion appears to largely agree with the AMA experts. In September 2020, the Pew Research Center found that 63% of Americans report the government is responsible for ensuring all Americans have healthcare coverage. This is up 4% from the year before. When addressing how this coverage should look, 36% say that healthcare should come from a single national government program. 26% say it should be available with a mix of government and private programs. On the other hand, 37% of Americans responded that the government is not responsible for ensuring health coverage. 6% support no government involvement of any kind. 30% say that Medicare and Medicaid programs should continue. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at differing opinions in healthcare reform in the United States. After the break, we'll take a look at the opinion that favors universal health care, otherwise known as Medicare for All. Then we'll take a look at the opposite opinion, which favors private insurance options over government-run health care. But first, let's take a quick break. And we're back. According to a 2021 Gallup poll, Americans are split about the quality of medical care in the United States. 51% of Americans are at least somewhat satisfied with the quality of care, while 47% are at least somewhat dissatisfied. On the other hand, 63% of Americans are at least somewhat dissatisfied with the availability of affordable health care. 41% say that they are, quote, very dissatisfied, unquote. Dissatisfaction appears to be on the rise. And debates are currently happening about whose responsibility it is to make healthcare more affordable and accessible for all. A 2020 Gallup poll reports that 56% of Americans say it is the federal government's responsibility to ensure all Americans have healthcare coverage. Some say this coverage should be achieved through universal healthcare or a single-payer government-run system. Supporters of this method say it would have the following benefits. 1. Universal healthcare ensures quality, affordable medical care that is available to all. 
Two, universal healthcare lowers medical costs overall, including lowering the price of medication, administrative costs, and services. And three, universal healthcare equalizes healthcare services, reducing systemic inequalities and leading to healthier patient outcomes. Let's take a look at these one by one. First, supporters say universal healthcare ensures quality, affordable medical care is available to all. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 8% of people did not have health insurance in 2019. Supporters say this means approximately 26 million people did not have easy access to quality care due to financial constraints and care costs. For those who did have insurance, 68% of the population used private health insurance, while another 34% used public coverage, like Medicare or Medicaid. Proponents say that transitioning to a single-payer system would eliminate the number of people who are uninsured, instead offering quality, affordable, or free coverage to all. In the first two weeks of April 2020, 5.2 million Americans filed for unemployment. Dr. Charlotte Markey is a professor at Rutgers University, Camden. She wrote an op-ed in U.S. News & World Report with two colleagues in 2020, saying that the COVID-19 pandemic may be a turning point in the healthcare system, as many people are losing their jobs when they need it most. She writes, quote, For most Americans, our healthcare is tied to our employment, and because of this, millions of Americans are losing their healthcare just when they may need it most. Economists predict that health insurance premiums will likely increase by 40% in the next year due to less payers and more who are in need of care and the eventual collapse of private health care insurance, unquote. Dr. Markey says that universal health care is a, quote, obvious and undeniable, unquote, choice. And Vox reports that it is necessary to switch so the U.S. can, quote, catch up, unquote, with every other developed country in the world. Dylan Scott is a reporter at Vox. In 2020, he wrote, quote, in other countries, there might be a disagreement about how to achieve universal health care, but both ends of the political spectrum start from the same premise. Everybody should be covered. Even in the Netherlands, which overhauled its health insurance in 2006 under a center-right government, there was no question about universal coverage, unquote. Dylan writes that universal health care is a necessary step in ensuring care access as, quote, health care is a human right, unquote. Health care is a human right is a common rallying cry among supporters in recent years. They use this phrase to say that the right to health is as fundamental as other basic rights, such as access to housing, safe drinking water, and education. Who is the World Health Organization? In 2017, it published a brief affirming its position on healthcare as a human right. It said, quote, The enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic, or social condition, unquote. The understanding of health as a human right was first defined in the Constitution of WHO in 1946. In the decades that followed, this right was further defined as more experts pushed for universal health care as a necessary next step. Health as a human right means that all people should be able to use the health services they need, when they need them, and where they need them, without struggling to pay the bill afterwards. WHO writes, quote, No one should get sick and die just because they are poor, or because they cannot access the health services they need, unquote. Supporters say that health as a human right extends not only to healthcare access, but to healthcare quality and choice. It ensures that people can control their own bodies and health, including having access to reproductive services without violence or discrimination. Who promotes the idea of people-centered care? It says, quote, everyone has the right to privacy and to be treated with respect and dignity. Nobody should be subjected to medical experimentation, forced medical examination, or given treatment without informed consent, unquote. Proponents say that universal health care would ensure that people have access to preventative and crisis medical care they need. This encourages them to be active participants in their own care, which improves health outcomes and makes the system as a whole more efficient. Some supporters say that universal health care has a similar purpose as public education. 
It is not a, quote, handout, unquote, but instead an investment in the American public. Walter McClure is the chairman of the Center for Policy Design, a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy organization. In 2017, he wrote an op-ed with two colleagues in Health Affairs, a health policy publication. In this op-ed, they wrote that when public education was proposed, many may have argued that this system threw away tax dollars, arguing that people who wanted education could go and buy it, and ignoring the many who could not afford it. Instead, the government invested in public education and workforce productivity boomed. Similarly, they say, universal health care is an equally wise investment. Done right, it will return more than it ever costs. They write, quote, Sickness is costly. It shrinks the workforce and makes it less productive. Good health, like education, expands the workforce and makes it more productive. One reason other countries have better health than the United States at substantially less cost is because they cover everyone starting at birth. Good, inexpensive prenatal care make healthy children, and healthy children make healthier, less costly adults. We are foolish not to do the same and make affordable coverage universal, unquote. Supporters say that ensuring universal health care cuts out the middleman, private companies that can drive up prices and make care less affordable at best and cost prohibitive at worst. With universal health care, Americans would never lose coverage again, whether they moved jobs, lost a job, retired, went to school, or chose to stay home and be a caregiver. Decisions could be made for what fit the person's life best, rather than worrying about losing necessary coverage. And on the business end, companies would no longer be burdened with providing health plans. Healthcare for All California reports, quote, lower health costs make businesses more competitive, both domestically and internationally, and earn more for employees and shareholders. Single payer makes it easier to start a new business without the complications, costs, and worries of obtaining employee insurance benefits, unquote. Proponents say that universal health care would provide peace of mind for all citizens. There would no longer be surprise medical bills or out-of-network prices, which can be exorbitant depending on the provider. Healthcare for All California says, quote, single payer is the peace of mind that no matter your life circumstances, when you need health care, you will receive it, unquote. Second, proponents say universal health care lowers medical costs overall, including lowering the price of medication, administrative costs, and services. Supporters say that by investing in universal health care, cost benefits would be seen long-term overall, both in public spending and by private consumers. For instance, Dr. Markey wrote in her U.S. News & World Report op-ed that in 2017, the U.S. spent twice as much on health care as comparable developed nations that had universal health care. That year, the U.S. spent 17.1% of the GDP on health care. The country with the second highest spending was Switzerland, which spent 12.3%, almost 5% less. Dr. Markey says that of all these countries, the U.S. has the highest percentage of private insurance, and the average per capita spending costs nearly three times more in the U.S. than in other developed countries. Quote, Among industrialized countries with comparable levels of economic development, government-provided health care is much more efficient and more economical than the U.S. system of private insurance. Unquote. Proponents say that one of the reasons costs are so high in the U.S. is because the healthcare system is primarily run through businesses, not the government acting in public interest. In example, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, hospitals, doctor's offices, these are all businesses. And since businesses want to turn a profit, they are often tempted to cut costs. And in healthcare, this often means cutting care. Dr. Markey writes, quote, Under the current system, a share of our healthcare dollars goes to dividends rather than to pay for care. Hospitals are considered a, quote, financial asset, unquote, rather than a public service entity, and a large portion of their budgets are dedicated to marketing rather than patient care, unquote. By transitioning to a universal system, supporters say this would eliminate numerous administrative costs and effectively streamline the process on its own. 
It would end negotiations about provider limits and insurance forms, which would in turn end a large expense for hospitals and healthcare providers. A Yale University study found that single-payer universal healthcare would save the U.S. $450 billion each year. This would reduce healthcare expenditures overall by 13%. Additionally, supporters say that one of the biggest financial benefits of universal healthcare would be lowering prescription costs. Studies have found that many pharmaceutical companies use the bulk of their profits for advertising, rather than for research, development, or manufacturing. Dr. Markey writes, quote, A universal healthcare system would not only not need to advertise, but would also be more effective at negotiating fair drug prices. Essentially, the government as a very large entity could negotiate price much more effectively as one large system with the government as the largest purchaser, unquote. Proponents say that since taxpayers contribute a large amount of money that goes into prescription drug development through NIH grants and other federal funding, they should also receive the benefits of these investments. Patients should not have to choose between potentially life-saving or life-improving medication and other living expenses. Many critics of universal healthcare say that investing in this system would cause taxes to rise, but supporters say that healthcare costs would reduce so much it would compensate for any increased taxes. Matt Brunig is the founder of the People's Policy Project, a crowdfunded think tank. In 2019, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times where he investigated the cost of universal health care. He wrote, quote, When an American family earns about $43,000, half of the average compensation when including cash wages plus employer payroll tax and premium contributions, 37% of that ends up going to taxes and health care premiums. In high-tax Finland, the same type of family pays 23% of their compensation in labor taxes, which includes taxes they pay to support universal health care. In France, it's 2%. In the United Kingdom and Canada, it is less than 0% after government benefits, unquote. Supporters say this example points to how eliminating deductible and health care costs could compensate for any tax increases. Additionally, they say that federal, state, and local governments would not need to budget for their own employees' health benefits. This could potentially free up budget for other projects such as infrastructure maintenance, additional employee benefits, and more. Universal healthcare would help eliminate waste in budgets across the country. The current healthcare industry spends about a third of every healthcare dollar on administrative costs, marketing, and paperwork. Supporters say that universal healthcare would eliminate these costs by having one agency to handle financing and offering each person the same policy. Healthcare for All California writes, quote, with everyone in and nobody out, money will no longer be wasted on marketing, underwriting, and administration of multiple health insurance plans. Healthcare professionals will no longer incur the cost of dealing with so many different plans, rules, and forms. Unquote. Third, supporters say universal healthcare equalizes medical care services, reducing systemic inequalities and leading to healthier patient outcomes. Proponents say that universal healthcare makes medical decisions between a patient and their doctor. Under the current privatized system, insurance companies impose restrictions on the kind and amount of care being covered. These restrictions sometimes interfere with patient care. Many insurance plans restrict the choice of who provides this care, and other plans restrict the care available. Supporters say that by investing in universal health care, patients would be able to have free choice of healthcare professionals and facilities. There would be no limitations based on out-of-network fees like the current privatized system. Healthcare for All California says it would also cover all medically necessary care automatically, focusing on preventative care. Quote, it includes alternatives supported by evidence, including chiropractor and acupuncture services, and gives equal consideration to physical and mental health needs. Decisions on treatment are left to the patients and their doctors. Unquote. Proponents say that universal healthcare reduces systemic inequality across the medical care system. Part of this is because the new system would cover every American, regardless of their income or prior health conditions. 
It would ensure that all have access to care when they need it at a price they can afford. Supporters also say it would ease disparities based on a patient's race or class. George Everett is the Florida governor of the American College of Physicians. In 2020, he wrote an op-ed in the Orlando Sentinel. George says, quote, Fixing the problem in healthcare does not solve all issues of disparity, but would contribute significantly toward improving the economic lives of everyone in the population at large and the businesses that drive our economy, unquote. Despite the U.S. spending the most on healthcare in the world, about 8% of people still did not have insurance in 2018. Canada, on the other hand, spends 7% less of their GDP on medical care, despite using a universal system. George writes that the racial disparities in health coverage are significant. 14% of black citizens and 25% of Hispanic citizens are uninsured, and these Americans struggle to access necessary care for themselves and their families. Quote, the health of the U.S. population is lower than that of all major advanced economies and has recently declined as demonstrated by a drop in U.S. life expectancy for the first time since World War II, now trailing the next lowest major developed economy, Germany, by nearly three years and the highest, Japan, by six years, unquote. Studies have shown that BIPOC citizens experience disproportionate health concerns in the United States. For example, one study found that societal factors and lack of healthcare access led black men to be two and a half times more likely to die from prostate cancer than white men. Another study found that while the ACA narrowed racial and ethnic gaps in healthcare access, black and Hispanic Americans were less likely than white citizens to have health insurance. Researchers also found that these groups were more likely to avoid care due to cost. Researchers say the ACA represents a, quote, glass half full, glass half empty story, unquote. Supporters say while coverage increased overall, there are still disparities, and lack of insurance means lower access to care and therefore poorer outcomes. For example, low-income individuals below the poverty threshold are four times as likely to lack coverage than individuals who make 400% of the threshold or above. Universal healthcare would address this inequity, ensuring that all citizens had affordable access to the care they need. Additionally, supporters say that by transitioning to universal healthcare, it would be possible to improve patient outcomes overall. According to the Commonwealth Health Fund, infant mortality is higher and the average lifespan is lower in the U.S. than among all comparable nations that offer universal health care. In addition, the U.S. has the highest chronic disease burden and obesity rate than similarly developed nations. Supporters point out this leads to the highest number of hospitalizations and deaths from preventable causes, unfortunate tragedies that may have been sidestepped with affordable access to high-quality care. Proponents say that universal health care not only improves personal patient outcomes, it's in the public's interest to take care of all patients. Dr. Markey wrote, quote, Aside from the fact that it is the compassionate and moral thing to do, viruses do not discriminate. When people don't have insurance, they won't go to the doctor unless they're gravely ill. Then they're more likely to spread illness to you and your family members while they delay getting the care they need, unquote. She says when people lack accessible care, they often end up needing crises care that is more expensive and requires more resources than if the issue had been treated earlier. Currently, supporters say taxpayers cover much of this cost. So when people don't have access to care, it affects everyone, whether they are insured or not. To recap, supporters say universal health care would ensure quality, affordable medical care for all Americans. They say that health care is a human right and Medicare for all would help ensure all had access. Proponents also say that universal health care lowers costs overall, making medication, services, and administrative costs more reasonable. Additionally, supporters say that universal health care equalizes health services. They say it would reduce systemic inequalities in medical care and lead to healthier patient outcomes. After the break, we'll take a look at the opposite opinion. Supporters on that side favor an enhanced privatized model for health care. 
They say this model will maintain care access and options, maximizing choice and reducing tax burdens for citizens. But first, let's take a quick break. And we're back. According to a 2020 Gallup poll, 69% of Americans reported being dissatisfied with healthcare costs in the U.S. 96% of Americans said the U.S. healthcare system had at least minor problems, with 16% saying that the system was currently in crisis. There are many opinions on how to address this crisis, and some say it would be best solved by restructuring healthcare into an enhanced privatized model. Supporters of this method say it would have the following benefits. One, a privatized model maintains care access and options, while a government-run model would bring long wait times and reduced availability. Two, a privatized model keeps tax burdens and costs modest, while a government-run model can cause costs to skyrocket. Three, a privatized model offers a greater range of choices in treatments and in care providers due to demand and incentives. Let's take a look at each of these one by one. First, proponents say a privatized model maintains care access and options, while a government-run model would bring long wait times and reduced availability. In 2020, researchers published a study in Medicina to debate the pros and cons of universal healthcare in the U.S. In their paper, the researchers wrote that while many developed nations use universal healthcare, quote, few, if any, of these nations are as geographically large, populous, or ethnically-slash-racially diverse as the U.S., Moreover, heterogeneous climates and population densities confer different health needs and challenges across the U.S., unquote. Supporters say that while other countries have implemented universal health care, it simply would not work in the United States. For example, some say that universal health care would be greatly inefficient. Some point out that privatized health care is the only way to avoid long wait time for care. Researchers found that the average wait time for elective hospital care in the U.K. was 46 days, and some patients waited over a year. Proponents say that by implementing a similar universal healthcare system in the U.S., increased wait times would occur. While this may be short-term, these longer wait times would come because of an increase in primary and emergency care visits. Some other proponents associate longer wait times with how inefficient government-run agencies can be. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. It reports that increasing the amount of government involvement in healthcare will damage healthcare access and the economy. It writes, quote, a total government takeover would be a massive and disruptive enterprise, consolidating the federal government's direct control over the entire healthcare sector for the economy, currently valued at approximately $3.6 trillion. That would be an unprecedented expansion of government power and would inevitably increase costs and the burdens on providers, stifle innovation, and inevitably limit the access to high-quality care, especially for patients in need of complex and technologically advanced medical services, unquote. Instead, proponents say this is an opportunity to shrink government involvement so patients have more flexible access to the care they need. For example, consider medical interventions when treating fatal diseases like heart disease and cancer. The Heritage Foundation reports that the U.S. healthcare system supports patients at greater rates than countries with universal healthcare, since patients are able to more easily secure access to elements needed in high-quality care. Supporters say the numbers illustrate these findings. Quote, screening for breast cancer was higher in the United States than in all other high-income countries. In treating heart disease, Americans lead other high-income countries in availability of coronary bypass surgery at a rate of 79 per 100,000 population. Canadians have a rate of 58 per 100,000, and the British have a rate of just 26 per 100,000. Unquote. Proponents say these numbers show how Americans have greater access to the surgeries they need than patients in other countries. This same care has been found similarly in access to prescription drugs. 
Research has also showed health disparities in the U.S. between public and private healthcare holders. Researchers in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, found a selected Medicaid patient cohort had the highest number of asthma-related hospital admissions. Quote, compared to patients in private sector health insurance, Medicaid patients have historically had a hard time getting doctors and medical specialists to take care of them because of excessive regulations and low Medicaid reimbursements, and they have thus failed to secure the same level of access to high-quality care and the superior medical outcomes enjoyed by private sector patients, unquote. Supporters say that access to privatized healthcare can ensure access without a long wait, or government interference. The Fraser Institute is a Canadian think tank. In 2016, it found that less than 40% of Canadian patients were seen by specialists within four weeks after a physician referral. In comparison, 70% of U.S. patients were able to see a specialist within that same time frame. And supporters say that this discrepancy extends to surgery wait times as well. The Fraser Institute found that after being advised surgery was necessary, about 35% of Canadians had their procedure within a month. 80% of patients were able to have surgery within four months. On the other hand, 61% of U.S. patients had their surgery within a month of advisement. After four months, approximately 97% of American patients had the procedure they needed. Proponents say that these wait time discrepancies illustrate how universal healthcare may leave patients with less access to the care they need than before, even if that care is covered fully in concept. Second, supporters say that a privatized model keeps tax burdens and costs modest, while a government-run model can cause costs to skyrocket. In 2017, Americans spent $3.3 trillion on healthcare. Among the spending, 34% went to hospitals, 28% went to physician services, and 11% was spent on prescription drugs. The Manhattan Institute is a conservative think tank. It reports that only a small fraction, 7%, of healthcare spending went to administrative costs, including taxes and profits. The Manhattan Institute says that while healthcare spending is high, health insurer profits are far below profit averages in other industries. In 2018, insurance company profits were about 3% of their revenues, the same as the average profit margin between 1990 and 2008. For reference, the average profit across industries is about 9%. Proponents say that privatized health insurance is less of a burden on taxpayers than switching to universal health care. Some say that the money insurance companies spend on administrative costs reduces the cost of the system overall. Insurance companies spend billions of dollars each year navigating these costs. Supporters say this spending greatly reduces the cost of purchasing medical services for the consumer. For instance, supporters say preferred network providers are an insurance company's way of minimizing fraud, inflated costs, and low-quality care. By working with healthcare professionals they trust and reward for cost-effective care, it improves patient experience and the impact on their wallet. Quote, this also gives insurers the ability to negotiate discounts with providers, to cut out unnecessarily costly facilities, and to steer patients towards better quality sources of care. Private insurers are free to experiment with new benefit designs and have an incentive to provide additional preventative care services to enrollees if these can help avoid costly hospitalizations, unquote. On the other hand, the Manhattan Institute says public management would cost more because there is no profit motive to shed unnecessary costs. For example, consider the Medicare system. Some supporters say that shifting to a privately managed Medicare plan would save patients 10 to 25 percent in care costs. It shifts users to more cost-effective care for preventative and crises needs, including primary care visits and outpatient surgery. Quote, efficiencies generated by private plans help fund extra benefits, such as prescription drug coverage, lower out-of-pocket costs, and dental care, worth an average of $1,284 per Medicare beneficiary per year, Unquote. In 2016, the share of patients enrolled in private Medicare plans grew to 31%. 
This is up from 22% eight years earlier. Supporters say this shift has brought numerous benefits. Quote, Strikingly, geographic areas with increased enrollment in private Medicare plans have seen healthcare costs decline even for those not enrolled, as medical providers reduce their employment of inpatient procedures, diagnostic tests, and post-acute care. Unquote. Additionally, proponents say that investing in universal healthcare would not only hinder patient care, it would burden taxpayers with millions of new dollars in spending. The Urban Institute is a center-left think tank. In 2019, it projected that a Medicare for All plan would require $34 trillion in additional spending over the first decade after a switch. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, that is more than the decade's projected cost for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid combined. Some universal healthcare supporters say that this spending will increase costs for wealthy individuals and big corporations, but lower costs for low income and middle class families. But proponents of privatized healthcare say that's simply not true. The Atlantic reports that changing to a universal single-payer health care plan would add 60% more federal spending over its first decade. It would require $32 trillion in new tax revenue during that time span, slightly less than the projected cost, since some savings would be found by eliminating certain existing tax benefits. Proponents point out that this is no small cost. Quote, how big a lift is it to raise $32 trillion? It's almost 50% more than the total revenue the CBO projects Washington will collect from the personal income tax over the next decade, about $23.3 trillion. A $32 trillion tax increase would represent just over two-thirds of the revenue the CBO projects the federal government will collect from all sources over the next decade, just over $46 trillion, unquote. Supporters say to make up this funding, tax increases would be inevitable. Some increases, like a proposed wealth tax on people with more than $5 million, would make an impact, but not cover the costs. The Atlantic reports this proposed tax would raise just $2.75 trillion in the next decade, a mere fraction of what's necessary to implement universal health care. A former CBO director estimates that implementing single-payer universal health care, quote, would require a payroll tax hike of 20 to 25 percentage points, unquote. Another expert suggests that proposed broad-based income tax increases would likely cover half the implementation cost, and a value-added tax may cover the rest. But either way, proponents say these increases would greatly impact all American taxpayers, not just a few. The Atlantic reports that however the funding is determined, universal single-payer health care would require increasing revenue at a rate not seen since the 1940s. Quote, measured as a share of the economy, total federal receipts tripled during World War II rising from almost 7% to nearly 21% of the gross domestic product from 1940 to 1945, according to federal figures. Since then, federal revenue, compared with the broader economy, has generally oscillated within a fairly narrow range. The most it's increased in a single decade is about 10% during the 1950s, 1960s, 1990s, and in the past decade, unquote. Currently, federal revenue sits at about 16.6%, which some consider low by historic standards. Supporters say that by switching to universal health care, this could increase to close to 30% by 2029, an increase unmatched since World War II. Proponents say this increase will hurt families of all sizes and incomes. Instead, they say reforming the privatized insurance model is the way to go. This way, patients will spend less in taxes and have greater flexibility in selecting their own care. Third, proponents say that a privatized model offers a greater range of choices in treatments and in care providers due to demand and incentives. The Heritage Foundation reports that universal healthcare systems can limit patients' freedom for care and the healthcare professionals' ability to practice medicine. It says that doctors and other medical professionals are already under great pressure, and universal healthcare would make it worse. 
Quote, faced with a variety of external stresses, many are demoralized not only because of the impact of government payment schemes in the large federal entitlements, Medicare and Medicaid. They are also on the receiving end of a steady stream of decisions from third-party administrators, struggling with bureaucratic paperwork in both the public and private sectors that progressively weaken their professional independence and autonomy, unquote. According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, the U.S. is facing the potential for a doctor shortage by 2030. Estimates range from being short 40,000 up to 120,000 doctors. There are many suggested reasons for this potential shortage, including burnout, early retirements, and a growing pessimism over the future of medicine. The Heritage Foundation reports, quote, The main culprit, however, is the growing and deepening demoralization among doctors who are wrestling with administrative burdens, including excess paperwork. These burdens are imposed by both public and private payers, including the largest payers, Medicare and Medicaid, the giant federal entitlement programs, unquote. Supporters say that expanding to universal healthcare would only deepen the shortage and add more stress on healthcare professionals. Proposed expansions would not only enact more regulations and paperwork, some say it would also limit a doctor's ability to care for patients outside government programs, limiting private practice and other opportunities. Instead, proponents say that privatized healthcare should be enhanced to better support patients and doctors. One way would be to reform medical care to reduce administrative hassles that are demoralizing healthcare professionals. By changing regulations, it would aid professional morale and restore doctor-patient relationships. Additionally, some supporters say that focusing on privatized healthcare would provide both healthcare professionals and patients with higher quality facilities. Since these hospitals and other clinics are funded by private profits rather than taxpayer dollars, some say they are more updated than public alternatives. This includes more innovative technology, more maintained facilities, and more amenities. Dr. Victor Dernfeld wrote an op-ed in support of privatized healthcare, which was published by the Canadian Medical Association in 1996. In this paper, he wrote that choice was a cherished value in medical care. He says that with universal healthcare, accessibility and quality failed to meet high standards applied by private healthcare options. Quote, Physicians have been frustrated by their inability to provide needed services for their patients because of cutbacks in funding. They have worked hard to make the system more efficient and to apply new techniques and technologies innovatively and creatively to increase throughput and to improve accessibilities, unquote. Dr. Dernfeld says despite these efforts, many doctors have faced their own struggles. Quote, cutbacks in operating room times have affected surgeons of all types, anesthetists, and interventional cardiologists. Hospital and bed closures have affected family physicians, emergency physicians, and cognitive specialists. The tyranny of a single-payer system also denies physicians a choice, unquote. Supporters say that privatized healthcare is an option that supports both doctors and patients. It encourages innovation in care and new technologies put forth by medical companies. The Fraser Institute reports that private sector organizations have more incentive to innovate than public institutions since new technologies can increase services and profits. Quote, for example, private health insurers in the United States are implementing new policies and procedures to make the cost of gene therapies more manageable for their clients, primarily businesses that provide health insurance to their employees. End quote. On the other hand, some proponents say universal health care may stall progress or limit innovation in necessary technology and medical care. Since new technologies are expensive, the Fraser Institute says the government may be less likely to develop and introduce its use. Consider this example from Canada. Quote, in Canada, if the federal government implements a national pharmacare plan, the CHA's prohibition on private payment for medically necessary services will presumably extend to drug therapies. As a result, government bureaucrats will be responsible for balancing cost containment against the benefits of new and likely more expensive technologies across most parts of Canada's healthcare sector. Unquote. Supporters say that limiting private healthcare means Canadian citizens have limited options to appeal government rulings. 
In a private system, on the other hand, there would be financial coverage for new technologies without struggling from public coverage or long wait times. Another way to enhance privatized healthcare would be to provide more insurance plans, coverage options, and provider options. This includes customizing additional benefits such as disability, vision, dental, accident, and critical illness insurance based on the patient's personal needs. Supporters say that healthcare is not one size fits all. Instead, it must be customized to care for individual patients and their needs. What works for a 75-year-old man may not work for a 32-year-old mother of two, and that may not work for a 12-year-old child. Instead, keeping healthcare private means patients will have an option to pick and choose the benefits they need and craft a plan that works for them. Unlike universal healthcare, private healthcare means patients are able to choose from a broad range of options and find the one that fits best. Supporters say this means that patients are in control. It also means companies will be incentivized to consistently innovate and up their benefits. A flow of payments means that companies have more resources to invest in new technologies, technologies that may improve health, lower care costs, and extend patients' lives. And when these systems are working as they should, proponents say that patients will come out on top. The Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity reports, quote, if market-based systems are working well and insurers are competing for individuals' enrollment on the basis of price and quality, the underlying cost of insurance should be affordable for the average individual before subsidies are taken into account, unquote. Supporters say that all of these benefits mean that patients have consistent access to high-quality care, care they may not be able to quickly access under a universal healthcare system. To recap, proponents say that a privatized healthcare model maintains care access and options, while a government-run model would bring long wait times. They say that investing in privatized healthcare would expand the number of people covered overall and ensure that they have access to the care that they need. Supporters also say that a privatized model doesn't burden taxpayers, and instead it keeps overall costs modest in comparison to a government-run system. Additionally, proponents say that privatized healthcare offers a greater range of choices, focusing on patient freedom rather than government mandates. Patients and doctors have more options in treatment and care due to demand and incentives. On the other hand, supporters of universal healthcare say that this system would ensure quality, affordable medical care for all Americans. They say that healthcare is a human right and that Medicare for All would help ensure that all have access. Proponents also say that universal healthcare lowers costs overall, making medication, services, and administrative costs more reasonable. Additionally, supporters say that universal healthcare equalizes health services. They say it would reduce systemic inequalities in medical care and lead to healthier patient outcomes. So with all this in mind, what do you think? Should the U.S. adopt a universal healthcare system similar to the ones in place in Canada and the U.K.? Or should the U.S. continue with a privatized system, making adjustments to expand access to care? Is it the government's responsibility to ensure healthcare access? Is healthcare a human right? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reactions may be used in an upcoming episode or in another part of the We the Voters site. Also, let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email if you'd like to find out more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. 
These are quick things that can make a big impact in helping this project grow. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to me to share We the Voters with you. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with another conversation about U.S. culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. We the Voters.